Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. Chesa Boudin is part of something, a national movement to change the way that district attorneys operate within the criminal justice system. He wants to make the change in San Francisco as that city's new DA. Boudin is running in a competitive race this fall, and he has attracted the support of change agents from across the country. Chicago District Attorney Kim Fox, Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner, Queens DA candidate Tiffany Caban. Having worked for a number of years as a San Francisco public defender, Boudin knows the system. He has big plans to eliminate cash bail, to end racial disparities, to end mass incarceration, and to expand mental health treatment so that San Francisco can stop using its jail as an ineffective and inhumane mental health facility. But there is more to Boudin's run. He has distinguished himself in this moment of debate about a broken criminal justice system by speaking openly and insightfully about his own experience as the son of parents who were jailed throughout his childhood. His parents, whether underground radicals Kathy Boudin and David Gilbert, were incarcerated when he was just 14 months old for driving the getaway vehicle in a robbery that left three men dead. Raised in Chicago by Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, who were themselves members of the Weather Underground, Boudin recalls visiting his parents behind bars and struggling with what that meant for his life. He speaks of all this in powerful terms, and he connects it to criminal justice debates with a reminder that more than half of Americans have a family member behind bars. Speaking as a public defender, a Rhodes Scholar, and an activist, Boudin says, I know our system is broken. I'm running for district attorney because I know how to fix it. Chesa Boudin, thanks so much for joining us on Next Left. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. That's a pleasure. And this is a podcast about politics and about how people uh, run campaigns and get elected. And I'm struck by how you started your campaign so boldly and so transparently with the story of your parents. Uh, Can you tell us a little about them and also why you decided to at least begin by framing your campaign around their story. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of been written about my parents and much of what's been written deals with a history that predates my own life. And so uh, for me, it really began when I was born in 1980 in New York City. And about a year later, my parents left me at the babysitter. And while I was playing with the babysitter, they went off and drove the getaway car in an armed robbery. Even though they were unarmed, drivers, three people were killed in the robbery. And my parents were facing very long prison sentences. I was adopted by another family. And ultimately, my mother would serve 22 years in prison. My father is still incarcerated today and is unlikely to ever get out. That reality was something I grew up with since before I can remember. My earliest memories are going through prison gates and, and waiting in lines to get searched by prison guards just to be able to see my parents, just to be able to touch them, give them a hug. And it's an experience which we can talk in great detail about, and I'm happy to, but to get to the heart of your question, it's something that shaped my relationship with the criminal justice system that has led to my work as a criminal justice reformer that helped motivate me to become a lawyer, to become a public defender, and now to run for district attorney. And so 
those experiences are really defining for me and they are and I think appropriately should be a central part of my campaign. It's one of the things that sets me apart, not only from the other candidates in this race, but from virtually every elected district attorney in the history of this country. You know, and it's a it's really telling that today in the United States, the majority of people in the country have an immediate family member who's either currently or formerly incarcerated. It's a defining feature of modern American culture. And yet the folks who are responsible for making decisions about who to send to prison, the district attorneys, all too rarely have ever experienced that 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 family or parental incarceration. Mm-hmm. And there is historically in politics, there's been a, a policing of our politics, right? And it's a intermingling of uh, shaming people, accusing people, exposing, you know, doing all these all these words that are used to try and, and make people not choose to to come forward with their own story and to to be transparent, to be open, to embrace it and to speak of it. My sense is that what you're doing here as a candidate is is breaking through a lot of history of our not just uh, as regards criminal justice, but a lot of history of our politics in this country. And that's right. And it was it was very intentional. And it's it's actually something that I've been doing in many ways since way before I was a candidate for office. And I'll I'll, I'll go back to that in a moment. But let me just start by saying we knew when we decided to run that there would be personal attacks against me because of mistakes my parents made when I was an infant. As ridiculous as that is, as absurd as it is to blame me for things my parents did, we knew that it would happen. And it has happened. There's uh, a video that the San Francisco Deputy Sheriff's Association has put out and promoted. They're supporting one of the other candidates in the race that very explicitly tries to blame me for what my parents did. And there's another PAC that's uh, opposing me in the race that's making phone calls to voters right now and, and telling them horrible things about my parents as though that somehow bears on my qualifications or capacity to be an effective district attorney. We knew that was going to happen. And we made a decision in this race that I've made actually throughout my life, which was to be honest and open and transparent about my life experience and to embrace the challenges and try to turn them into strengths. You know, when I was in first grade in kindergarten, when I was a a young boy, I always would tell people who I met that my parents were in prison. If it came up or if we came anywhere near the topic, if someone said, oh, you know, what'd you do for the weekend? I was visiting my parents in prison. They said, oh, what do your parents do? Well, my dad's a janitor uh, on his cell block in state prison. I was eager to get it off my chest and out in the open. And I felt more comfortable once it was for a few reasons. First of all, I knew, thanks to the way I was raised, that it did not reflect negatively on me, that it was not something that I should be ashamed of. It was not something that I should feel guilty about. And of course, many children with incarcerated parents experience tremendous stigma and and shame because of their parents' incarceration. My family worked hard to help me overcome that. And one of the ways I did it was putting it out there and letting people know. And at that point, if somebody wanted to judge me because of my parents' mistakes, then we knew early in the relationship and we could move on. I feel the same way uh, about this election. If people are going to not vote for me despite my qualifications, despite my concrete policy proposals, despite my vision for transforming 
our criminal justice system into one that works for everybody, not only for the rich and powerful. Uh, if they're going to not vote for me because of something my parents did, then we may as well get that out and get that over with early in the process. Let me ask you one more question about your family, but not necessarily about your parents. Uh, your family is, is really remarkable in so many ways. There's a, a tradition going back many generations of scholars and activists, socialists, radicals, lawyers, and judges. And you seem to have mingled it all up in your life. You've been an author of important books. You've obviously been an activist, your lawyer and a public defender. But I'm interested in, you know, with all that, with all that, that history and background, what made you decide to run for public office? Yeah, well, let me let me take a step back and start kind of with my family as, as your question started with. Um, I, I grew up, despite having parents in prison, in a very privileged uh, environment in many ways. I, I went to a great school. I had a stable, loving, adopted family with two older brothers. And as you said, there was sort of a, a legacy, if you will, of social justice lawyering in my family. Um, my grandfather, Leonard, who I knew and was very close with, was a well-respected and very successful uh, Supreme Court litigator who represented people like Paul Robeson and Dr. Spock, among others, um, when they were being targeted for their political views. And when I was in law school, I read cases that he had argued and litigated all the way to the Supreme Court. While I was in law school, I also read cases that had been written by my uncle, uh, my grandfather's son, um, who is a federal appeals court judge and who is not in any way identified with uh, left-wing politics or he was actually appointed by a Republican president. And so there, there was, as you said, sort of uh, an environment, a family legacy, if you will, of engagement with the law and public office. It's something that I think shaped my interest in going to law school and, and many of the, the role models and people that I looked up to growing up were people who used the law, lawyers, judges in some cases, to effectuate social change and to advocate on behalf of people who'd been traditionally excluded from um, social benefits. And that was definitely what motivated me to go to law school. I didn't know exactly what form it would take. When I graduated after clerking for two federal judges in California, I decided to become a public defender because I wanted to make sure that every single person in our society, even people too poor to hire a lawyer, had access to equal justice. I'm running for district attorney because I want to make sure that everybody in San Francisco has access to equal justice. And what I mean by that is, you know, I learned growing up after years and now decades of prison visits that our criminal justice system is broken. I saw it in the way that families experience the criminal justice system. I saw that my family was destroyed because of something my parents did. I saw that my parents were put in a place that was inhumane and would never rehabilitate them or the people around them in a meaningful way. And that for the billions of dollars we were spending on punishing my parents and so many others caught up in the system of mass incarceration, victims of their crimes had basically nothing to show for it all. As a public defender, I saw injustices in uh, more acute ways play out in San Francisco's criminal courts. I've done more than two dozen jury trials. I've been um, active in a wide range of you know criminal justice reform work. And what I saw day in, day out in our in our criminal courts was a system that systematically discriminated against poor people and people of color, that systematically ignored victims' rights and used victims as pieces of evidence to secure convictions without any real regard for what victims wanted or needed. 
and a system that ultimately was serving as a revolving door was not keeping us safer in any way. Uh, in San Francisco, for example, 75% of the people taken to county jail are drug addicted, mentally ill, or both. And jail is not an effective place to deal with those sorts of public health crises. And yet that's exactly what we're doing. The county jail has become the number one provider of mental health services in San Francisco. It's inhumane, it's expensive, and it's ineffective. All that's sort of the background for what led me to begin doing broader impact litigation work. I was the founding chair of the board of Civil Rights Corps, a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C. that does impact litigation in more than uh, two dozen states. And I also spearheaded uh, a series of projects in San Francisco around ending money bail. Uh, we have a case now pending in front of the California Supreme Court and also around ending cooperation with ICE. Back in 2012 and 2013, when I first started working in San Francisco's Superior Court, the policy was that anybody who was not a citizen who was arrested and taken to jail would be held and handed over to ICE, regardless of the outcome of the criminal case, regardless of whether charges were even filed. And so I worked to change that policy successfully, worked to end money bail, and on a wide range of other uh, program and policy work. And yet I saw that the day-to-day -day practices in the Hall of Justice just weren't changing fast enough, that people's lives were being destroyed, that our communities were not being kept safe. And as I was doing all this work on bail reform and immigration, I saw a movement building across the country. I saw a national movement building. People like Larry Krasner running for district attorney in Philadelphia and winning. People like Rachel Rollins in Boston, Kim Fox in Chicago, Tiffany Caban in Queens, all folks who've endorsed me in this campaign and all folks who inspired me in, in no small part to run because of what they were able to do. Their vision of being a district attorney on a platform that's not just progressive, but that's, as Tiffany Caban likes to say, decarceral that's focused on ending mass incarceration, that's focused on building safety through alternatives to incarceration, that's focused on empowering victims through restorative justice. And that national movement happens to coincide with San Francisco's first open district attorney's race in over a century. John, this is literally the first time since 1909 when there is not a candidate on the ballot with the title of incumbent for district attorney in San Francisco. We'll be back after these messages. Join me on the nation cruise to the Western Caribbean this December 8th through the 15th, sailing from Fort Lauderdale, Florida with ports of call in the Bahamas, Jamaica, Grand Cayman and Mexico. I'll be joined by Ijen Poo, Joan Walsh, Ben Jealous, Zephyr Teachout, and many other progressive thinkers, leaders, and heroes. Together, we'll explore our turbulent political landscape and debate what can be done about challenges facing the United States and the world. We'll do it all amid the natural beauty of the Western Caribbean. This trip will sell out fast. Secure your spot at www.nationcruise.com. I hope to see you on board. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm speaking with Chesa Boudin, a candidate for district attorney in San Francisco's election on November 5th. You're right that there is something happening. And one of the interesting things about American politics is that often movements start and they don't surface 
in electoral politics as quickly as they should. In this case, because we have so many elected prosecutors and so many elected DAs and judges across this country, there are all these entry points for young candidates. And it strikes me that that you're a case of that. And so many of the other people you've mentioned, so many of these people are first time candidates. Yeah, no, it is exciting. And I think it's something that voters in this race have been have been really enthusiastic about because there's a certain level of cynicism that many voters feel with machine politics. And, you know, regardless of how much you hate the current manifestation of the Trump Republican Party, there's not always a lot to be excited about with the Democratic Party or with machine politics as they manifest in local races. And so we can have candidates we love. We can have candidates we're excited to be behind, as I I think many of us are going into the presidential cycle. But at the local level, in places like Chicago, where Kim Fox won, in places like San Francisco, where I'm running, machine politics is alive and well. And having voters who are not beholden to the mayor or to the party chairman is something that that people in San Francisco have been really enthusiastic about. And I'll tell you, this is, as I said, the first time in 110 years where the ballot will say that there's no incumbent. There's nobody with the title of incumbent on the ballot. But about a week ago, the current district attorney, who everybody knew was resigning and everybody knew was not running for reelection, which is why we had this open race announced that he was leaving his term early. He was not going to serve out his term. He announced that he was going to be leaving his job October 18th, just 18 days, 12 business days before the election. Well, the mayor, who's supporting one of my opponents in the race, immediately organized a press conference to announce that she would be appointing my opponent in the race to take over for those last 18 days, those 12 work days including election day. It's something that led to widespread protest. The press conference was actually shut down by protesters. Um, There's been a media outcry um, in San Francisco and beyond. Um, The ACLU, which is a nonpartisan organization, has not endorsed any candidate in this race, condemned the move as interfering with free democratic process. And the voters that we talk to every day at bus stops and knocking on doors have said really clearly they want a district attorney that's accountable to them, not to the mayor. And this move is so transparently about politics, not public safety. There is nothing of substance that is going to get done by a new head of office in 12 days with a hotly contested election. The only thing that move does is give free press to, in a, in a sort of a, a air of legitimacy to a machine backed candidate. And uh, voters are really upset. Our mobilizations, our volunteer events since uh, the mayor interfered with the election have been about five times our average size. We went from having 30 to 40 volunteers show up on a, any given Sunday to having well over 100 show up uh, the last two weeks. And so, you know, we are working hard to send a message here in San Francisco and across the country to politicians who are taking plays out of Trump's playbook, who are trying to interfere with and undermine uh, democracy, who don't trust the voters to actually make up their own mind, who don't believe in free and fair democratic process. And the message is, it does not work. It backfires. Don't do it. But to send that message, not just to the mayor in San Francisco, but 
to local officials and party bosses across the country and all the way to President Trump, we need to make sure that there's a cost to pay for this kind of blatant interference with democracy. San Francisco is a unique town. It obviously has a, a, an outsized image nationally uh, and generally an image as, as a liberal town. I know it's, the politics on the ground are always more complex, but I'm interested in your sense. You're running for this office. If you win it, do you think there are things you can do in San Francisco that can really serve as national models that, that uh, obviously in combination with others in this movement, but perhaps unique to San Francisco, things that you can do? Absolutely. And that's a big part of why I'm running. I think San Francisco is a uniquely progressive and also a uniquely well-resourced place. And of course, the city's changing. It's not as progressive as often our own self-identity is. There's some specific policies that I've put out that uh, I'm really excited about modeling, not just because I think they're going to make San Francisco safer, more humane, and more efficient use of tax dollars, but also because I think they present an opportunity to really transform the criminal justice system across the country and to lead the way. One of those um, policy commitments I've made is really victim-centered, and it's to give every victim of every crime the right to participate in restorative justice if they choose to. And for folks who aren't familiar, restorative justice is a concept where instead of focusing on punishing the person who caused the harm, we focus on healing the harm that they caused and requiring that they be accountable for doing some of that healing. So it requires the victim to be actively involved. Uh, it requires you know them to say what they need. Um, if it's something as simple as you know graffiti on my garage, then the person who caused that harm can start being held accountable by painting the garage back to the way it looked before the graffiti was sprayed. Obviously, with violent crimes, it's it's more complicated and more serious and and longer, more difficult process. But I'll tell you, restorative justice saved my life. If if we hadn't engaged in restorative practices in my family, if we hadn't um, had the opportunity to really build a relationship, um, my parents and I, if we hadn't had the chance to work through the anger that I felt at them, the sense of shame that I experienced as a very young child, I never would have gotten to that place in first grade and second grade where I was comfortable openly and honestly sharing my story. I never would have gotten to the place where I would have dared to run for San Francisco district attorney. And it wasn't just me. One of the victims of my parents' case, a woman who testified against my father at trial, who was not one of the three men killed in the case, but was carjacked, ended up volunteering at my mom's prison years later. And my mom didn't know who she was at first. It, it wasn't a formal restorative justice process. It was an informal one. But they built a relationship with each other. The woman knew who my mom was. My mom did not know who the woman was because my mom had pled guilty and had not seen the testimony in my dad's trial. And over years of working together, they built a really strong friendship. And it's one that did far more to make my mom appreciate the harm that she had participated in causing than the 22 years in prison that she spent. And it did far more to heal the trauma and the anger that this woman experienced as a result of her victimization in the crime than the lifetime that my father is going to spend in prison. And in fact, the woman, after building a relationship with my mom, getting to know her, went to visit my dad uh, on her own, decided to go see him and get to know him. And she posted on Facebook recently, uh, I was really proud and humbled to see that she posted on her Facebook account that if she lived in San Francisco, she'd vote for me in this race. That is such a powerful story. Chase, it strikes me that you're somebody who's influenced not, not merely by the law books, but also by culture. 
and by music and films and that. Uh, am I right? You were right. And I, I've definitely had less time this year in the midst of the campaign to keep up on music and culture uh, as I'd like and as I usually do. But there was there was one movie in particular I saw this year. It's a very San Francisco movie and that uh, had a big influence on me. It's called The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Danny Glover was one of the uh, stars in the movie, but Jimmy Thales was another one. Jamal Trulove was another one. The director, Joe Talbot. Uh, all people come out of San Francisco. All of those people I just mentioned have also endorsed me in this race, so I'm partial to them. I should give that as a disclosure, but it is an amazing movie. It's brilliant. It's uh, The only way I can think to describe it is that it takes the, the, the very real problems San Francisco's confronting around gentrification and the evisceration of the black community here. San Francisco is now down to less than 5% uh, African-American population. Our jail is more than 50% African-American. So it deals with that reality, the real estate industry forcing people out, the contamination in the Hunter's Point shipyards, the, the toxic waste that was dumped there by the U.S. Navy and Tetratech. And it approaches it through a lens that's both very authentically San Francisco with San Francisco actors and directors and San Francisco insider humor, but also uh, an element of magical realism that uh, is most similar to uh, like a Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel. Um, it is a brilliant movie. It was widely popular in San Francisco. And uh, it is something that I will continue to think about as I embark on finding ways to uh, really redefine our approach to criminal justice, to make sure that African-Americans are not 50% of the people in our jails and that the police are not being used by the real estate industry as the front line of attack in wave after wave of gentrification. Let me close off with a, taking you back into your family, but to a, a very distant family member. Your great-great-uncle, Louis Boudin, ran for judgeships and legal posts in, in New York 100 years ago as a socialist candidate on the ticket, some, some years on the ticket with Eugene Victor Debs. He didn't win. And those campaigns were often about movement building and education your campaign is clearly about movement building and education, but you are in this to win. And that is a different thing in politics. You know, it is different to, to go into a race with the goal, not merely of expanding the debate, but of winning. And it seems that we've entered into a space in our politics today at all sorts of levels where those who have a a radical critique or a bold critique can actually win. And that requires a, a, a different frame in your head, I think. Let me uh, begin by responding to the comment about my great uncle, Louis Boudin. I was looking around the room here because I, I actually have some of his books. And he wrote a two-volume set, which he's pretty well known for, called Government by Judiciary, which was a critique of the efforts by the Supreme Court to undermine the New Deal and to take over and really prevent the popular reforms that were being implemented um, that had been voted in and supported by the legislation and uh, the legislature and by the executive branches in response to the Great Depression. And it's a story that's been told other places, but the title, Government by Judiciary, I think is, is an important jumping off point for this conversation because we want and we believe in a government by the people. And that's what this movement is about. That's what my campaign is about. It's not about having 
whether it's judges or whether it's having the mayor or whether it's having other uh, Democratic machine uh, officials decide our approach. It's about people power. It's about movement building. It's about grassroots. And as you said, often those sorts of campaigns and movements are just about, as they say, shaping the narrative or defining the terms of the debate. They're not about winning. When I was thinking about running for district attorney, when the, the current district attorney uh, announced that he was not running for re-election last October, about a year ago now, I started thinking about running. I started thinking about the historic moment we were in. And I said to myself that I would not run if I didn't think it were possible to win. If I didn't think there were a realistic chance of winning, I wouldn't do it only to define the terms of the debate or only to shape the debate. Not because I don't think that's valuable. I do. Not because I don't appreciate people who have done that, including my family members, as you point out, but because in this moment, I think my work that, I'm, that I've been doing, that I've loved doing is, is really important. And I wouldn't step aside from that work to simply run a campaign for the sake of running a campaign. I think there'd be other ways to continue shaping the terms of the debate, to continue to be advocating for criminal justice reform without you know, dedicating the kind of energy and, and, and time and money that it takes to run a successful campaign. So I wanted to do an analysis. I just looked around. I had conversations. I had hard conversations with people I trusted in San Francisco and beyond about whether it would be feasible to win. And what we looked at was a situation where one of the other candidates had the backing of the entire machine, the mayor, the U.S. senators. You know, We knew that they were going to continue to get support from the Democratic Party at the local level. And also already had about $160,000 in the bank before I decided to run. And mind you, in San Francisco, the maximum contribution is $500. So we were up against a very steep set of obstacles. But we did the analysis and we realized that we were in a historic moment. And we realized that people in San Francisco from all different backgrounds, all different races and languages, wealthy people, poor people, working people, tech industry people, lawyers, understood on some fundamental level that what we have been doing with the war on drugs and with this system that's built up mass incarceration is simply not working. It's undermining all of our humanity. And so we did the math, we crunched the numbers, and we realized that it was a long shot, but that it was possible. And that's why I decided to run. Now, over the last 10 months of my campaign, we have built momentum every single day. We now have more individual donors to our campaign than all three of the other candidates combined, right? It's small dollar, it's grassroots, it's building a movement. We have more volunteers showing up at our Sunday mobilizations every week than all three of the other campaigns combined. We have more detailed, specific policy proposals on our website than all of the other candidates. It's about putting good ideas out there, educating the public, and it's also about winning. And that's exactly what we're gonna do on November 5th. Jason Boudin, thank you so much for joining us on Next Left. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia steiner Eboy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhuvel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. Recording help this week from Ariella Markowitz. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts.